Instead of zeroing in on an imaginary war on Christmas, why not simply focus on the concept of peace on Earth? You don't fly in the face with Merry Christmas, and if you do, you better say it in its own voice that projects goodwill and right. not defiance. There is no goodwill in asserting your rightness in the face of a diverse population that may or may not hold to your own ideals. The person that you're having that little exchange with probably doesn't expect that you're following the same traditions, especially if it's something like Kwanzaa or Hanukkah or anything that's not mainline Merry Christmas. I think they understand that that's not your tradition, but it's theirs and their identity matters. When you're shackled to your religion the way that they are, it's difficult to know what peace really is. You can be the example of peace on earth that their savior was supposed to bring into the situation. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. Well, that time is upon us, ladies and gentlemen. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. And there's a reason why I use that phrase. And it's going to come up a little bit later why I think it's important mm. that we use that particular phrase when it's up to us right. to say it. I always, if somebody says Merry Christmas to me, I'll say Merry Christmas back. But there's a specific reason why I feel like Happy Holidays is just a little bit more personally empowering, and we're going to get into that part of it a little bit later. Tonight, we're going to be talking specifically about Christmas because that is where we're at. This episode is going to drop less than a week before Christmas, and we all know that some Christmas traditions have their roots in paganism, but that's something that I think a lot of podcasts and a lot of other sources have done the compare and contrast on. Right. Pretty much ad nauseum. So rather than doing that lengthy exposition on all the tie-ins and parallels and all of that, tonight I just want to talk about this holiday from the perspective of history. And and it might surprise you to learn how secular it actually has been almost from the start. It might also surprise you to learn that it hasn't always been embraced by some Christians or thought to be all that important to the church when it was a new thing. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And before we get into the meat of our message tonight, I just want to put out a quick appeal like I always do. Our Patreon account can be found at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. If you have the means, if you're looking for someone to give a little Christmas present to, well, here's your chance. Here's your opportunity. <laughs> we could certainly use your support. And I did the math on this and figured out just how easy it would be to simply zero out what we spend doing this show every year. And what it really boils down to is about 10 people coming up with five bucks a month. Yeah. That's it. Five people would take care of all of our internet expenses, our websites, and the online resources that we utilize, our podcast hosting, all of that. It would all be taken care of with five donors of five bucks a piece. Right. The additional five would help us to pay everything related to having our website, our domain fees, because we don't just have the one website. I actually grabbed a bunch of websites that have the unbound, get hyphen unbound part of them so that we could expand this a little bit more. We are 
the Unbound Podcast Network. I do hope to have more shows right. and more things for people to consume later on. So I have a couple of websites that are just sort of sitting there in the rafters and waiting to be used. And all of that together would be covered by another five people donating just five bucks a month. So if you're looking for a way to spread a little bit of Christmas cheer, <laughs> this is a good way to do it. And if you are kind of on the down and outs and not experiencing a whole lot of Christmas cheer this year because of circumstance, because you've been out of work, because life has kind of bitten you in the ass the way that it has pretty much everybody in 2020, yeah. we totally and completely get that. But, you know, I would consider it a really, really neat Christmas present if you would just spread the word about us. And again, I'll I'll say just like I said last week, tell someone, tell tell one other person that we're out there this week. Mm. And you may very well be changing someone's life. Right. There's there is that. And at this time of year, I can't think of a better gift than helping someone get their life back from a religion that hates them, from a religion that has proven over and over again that its primary purpose is not to lift up the individual, but to keep them in shackles. And that's why I call my show Unbound. It's time to break those shackles and help more people understand what this religion is doing to them. So if you can just tell somebody about us this week, that I think would be a great Christmas present to us, but more so to them. Right. And that's all I'm really going to say about it. We're going to get right into the heart of our message uh, and talk about this thing called Christmas. So most of our modern Christmas traditions are surprisingly contemporary, dating back really only about a century and a half, yeah. if that. And some are even more recent. I didn't learn this like today. Right. But I was surprised when I started looking at this from a more secular perspective, just how new a lot of the things that we do really are. It's the same right. thing as with Halloween. Halloween has not been a centuries old thing. It's relatively contemporary and so are a lot of the quote-unquote traditions that revolve around christmas but a lot of those traditions also date back a pretty long way it's just that it took this long for them to be all incorporated into this one festive season that we call the christmas season right now christian fascinations with paganism do go back a long way there are many observable reasons why so many ex-christians of a variety of traditions from catholicism to pentecostalism set their sights on pagan-based religions on their way out of theism these curiosities and fascinations have influenced their behavior for well over a millennium most of the wiccans we knew had pasts in various flavors of christianity and we have gone over many of the reasons why recently on this show Back in October, we did an entire episode on the parallels between Pentecostalism and witchcraft and how the Catholic liturgy is rife with pagan practices. But just to recap a few here or bring up a couple of new ones, there are a lot of things that happen in the course of some Catholic masses, not all, but some that have very, very close parallels with a lot of pagan practices. And that's going to be significant in a minute. Things like burning incense, lighting candles and ringing bells, those are the basics. Then you've got things like the protective amulets, like the monstrance. And anyone who doesn't know what this is, it serves a variety of purposes, but most of the purpose of a monstrance is to hold the consecrated Eucharist, which is the communion wafers for anyone who right. doesn't know what Eucharist means. 
it would be the communion wafers that have been consecrated and transubstantiated. And they put them in this thing that basically looks like a big round thing with sun rays. That's what most monstrances, it's very <laughs> difficult to say that word in plural, but that's what <laughs> most of them look like. And right. that's what most of them are there to do just to showcase the consecrated Eucharist or some kind of relic right. or some kind of symbol that they think deserves a little bit of extra attention at that moment. Then you've got the whole notion of spells. We just talked about transubstantiation, and that's mm. when they allegedly turn the uh, water and wine right. into the literal body and blood of Christ, yeah. or at least that's their belief. That's interesting because I was thinking that when the, the priest gives you things to do after a confession, that's kind of like a spell. It's like, oh, say these incantations and do these things. Yeah, your penance is usually to say a few prayers or right. something along those lines. What they really like to do, I don't know if they do this much anymore. I mean, God, it's been decades and decades since I've been to confession. But one of the favorite things to do, I know, in the late 70s and early 80s was to also tell you to go light a votive candle. And of course, that costs money. Oh, yeah, you have to pay like a dollar or something. Yeah, well, usually like the ones that were right next to the altar, they were more in the line of like a quarter, yeah. you know, easy for a kid to come up with. Right. You know, if you had done something that week that wasn't cool, then having a priest tell you to give up your little 25 cent allowance and not get your candy bar this week was a due punishment for whatever yeah. it was you did wrong. Right. So you had that. And then the other thing that just jumped into my head was the whole notion of drawing symbols in the air, either on yourself or with hand gestures. And in most instances in the Catholic liturgy, it basically involves the sign of the cross. Whether you're making right. it yourself or if the priest is using it as a blessing, it's the primary one that you see. And when I started uh, getting involved with Wicca, that was what I thought of when we started learning about things like summoning and, ban and banishing pentagrams that you just draw in the right. air. And, I could never get those right. Right. And then there was the uh, the Reiki symbols was yeah. another one that really brought me back to that notion of just waving your hand around and having something magic happen. Right. So these things are part of the liturgy because the Catholic Church was enthusiastic about converting pagans and creating a space where they would feel comfortable drinking in the indoctrination. They wanted to create a ritual space that had as many points of familiarity as possible with that specific demographic so that the people that that religion attracted would be able to let their guard down long enough to accept this new slant and let the indoctrination get in there. Hmm. People outside of pagan faiths still had a fascination with magic and mysticism because that's people. And that fascination at the time was exacerbated by a lack of scientific knowledge. So really, for the Catholic Church, this is a win-win. The mystical atmosphere of the Mass had a very widespread appeal. I mean, you don't have to be pagan to enjoy a little hocus-pocus. Just ask J.K. Rowling. Right. But it wasn't the Catholic Church that began or perpetuated a majority of the practices associated with Christmas. Most of them are much older than Christianity and come from a variety of faiths and traditions, most of which were secular or born out of popular myths. The Catholic Church did, however, quite conspicuously and very nonsensically insert the story of Christ's nativity 
into the popular contemporary midwinter celebrations of that time. I say it's nonsensical, not because it wasn't well thought out, because it was, but because of the timing of it and the details surrounding the winter solstice. Even without the benefit of modern scientific observation, primitive humans had an impressive understanding of at least the basics of astronomy, at least to the extent that they noticed that certain things happened in the sky throughout the course of the year. The constellations changed. They saw different stars in the sky in winter than they did in summer. They noticed changes in the position of the sun and that days started getting longer and shorter at specific times of year. And they were able to pinpoint these changes down to the day in some circumstances, like the solstices and the equinoxes. Right. They just knew that this was when that change was taking place. Some were so perceptive that they managed to observe a specific perceived anomaly in the way the sun behaved right around the winter solstice. So to just give a little thumbnail sketch of this, and, and there are different sources that tag different meanings onto right. it. Basically, what happens around the, uh, the winter solstice is that the sun reaches a point on the horizon, its lowest point on the horizon for the year. And this happens around the 20th or 21st of December. It does vary a little bit because a year is not exactly 365 days. No. It's about 365.25 days. So over the course of time, the actual timing of this event does fluctuate just a little bit. Mm. But there comes a point right around the 20th or 21st of December that the sun reaches its lowest point on the horizon and then perceptibly stays there for three days. And then on that third day, you see a very slightly noticeable shift in where the sun is at its highest point. So that told primitive humans that a change was coming. Right. And in this particular instance, that change meant that the days were going to start getting longer again. So the winter solstice is typically known as the shortest day of the year with the least sunlight. But there's about a three-day period in there where that amount of sunlight is basically the same. And then right around Christmas, the 24th or 25th, is when we start seeing the days start getting slightly longer every day until around June 20th or 21st. Right. So they were able to perceive these tiny little changes and they knew that this was the start of what the pagans would call their summer season. But um, summer was still a long way off, and there were other festivals and other Sabbaths that were established to basically timeline everything that was going to happen in the year. A lot of classical paganism didn't even have to do with witchcraft. It had to do with agriculture. So there really was no hocus pocus involved. It was just a matter of people perceiving their world and noticing when things changed. So once they kind of got it down to a pattern, they wrote all kinds of traditions around the different times of year so that they would know when to do certain things or when certain things were going to happen, so that they would know when to plant which crops, so they knew when the animals were going to start lactating and and start preparing to, to bear their young. And that's what um, Imbolc is about in February. Right. And there are other examples, but we're not going through the pagan calendar. We're talking about Christmas, <laughs> and we're talking about what, what the sun does during that time of year. 
So given this little tidbit of information, just the background of what the sun does during this time of year, why would it be nonsensical to insert Christ's nativity into this timeline? Well, in my mind, there are two basic and, uh, pre and prevailing reasons. Even with no factual data to base the opinion on, most theologians agree that it was more likely that Jesus was born in the springtime rather than in winter. They cite things like the timing of the census that was supposedly going on at the time. If you read the biblical account of Christ's nativity, it starts out by telling you that there was a census going right. on in that area and that people were traveling in that area at the time. But during that time, it would have been far more difficult for people to travel than at other times of the year. It's worth noting here that there is no historical record that corroborates that any such event happened when the Bible says it did in the first place. So that should tell us right off the bat that the story we're being told is allegory. Right. But people still take it way too literally. Now, given the fact that the winter season in the region of Palestine is short and very wet, it's actually more like early fall temperature-wise at that point. It really didn't make sense to have scores of people traveling by foot with limited lodging that often provided little or inadequate shelter from the elements at that time. Most, if not all, of the rain in that region falls at the same time that lots of people were supposedly traveling for this census. I mean, can you imagine this? Oh, God. Everything that you're traveling with is now waterlogged. You are wet and at night probably cold. It's freezing in the desert at night. In this area, from what I was able to glean from my research, it doesn't usually get that cold at night. Right. So we're talking somewhere in the vicinity of 50 degrees. But still, still, take a shower in a t-shirt and shorts or, or do it the way that – take a shower in a bathrobe, okay? <laughs> and then go outside when it's 50 degrees yeah, and tell no. me how comfortable you are. You will not be So happy. it really wasn't a matter of exposure to the elements. It didn't get that cold, but it was very, very wet. So all of your supplies, everything that you bring with you is getting waterlogged and your clothes are dripping wet and clinging to you and bogging you down. There's no point whatsoever in trying to get people to travel during a time of year when this is going to be happening to them, okay? There were no umbrellas, <laughs> and there was no mass transit. They were all on foot, so trundling through wet and soggy and damp and humid and everything else, and I mean, their food would probably have spoiled oh, yeah. on the way too. So when you take all of this, and consider all of the things that would be wrong with having a mass of people showing up in town at one time, December just isn't the right timing for it. It just isn't. Now, by April, however, day and night temperatures generally stay far above freezing in that region. It's more like summer-like conditions here, right. but they go on for longer. It's a longer summer season. At that point, once the winter, once the quote unquote winter months were over, like starting in April, it was much easier for people to travel. So if a census was going to take place, it would have taken place during the more moderate eight months of the year, not during the exact worst time of year to safely and comfortably travel. The story of Jesus being born and placed in a manger in a drafty barn or more likely an open structure like a pergola with a makeshift roof, but no walls makes no sense. 
since it would be difficult for an infant to survive or remain well under those conditions. If you want to believe that things happen the way the Bible says they did, it is unlikely that this scene would have been set in December in the region of Palestine. The timing is just off. The second reason springs from the facts of the events that take place around the winter solstice. So let's bring this full circle. Let's talk about the significance of this whole three days analogy with the sun. So let's just think about that and think about what it sounds more like, okay? So the sun reaches its lowest point on the horizon and stays there for three days. And then on the third day, visibly and noticeably rises. What does this sound like? To me, it does not sound like the birth of Christ. No. It sounds like the resurrection story because the sun is at its lowest point right. and stays there for three days and then rises again mm -hmm. on the third day. To me, in my brain, logic would dictate that that is the story of the resurrection and not the birth of Christ. But the timing of that is way off, too, because they also weren't going to be doing any of this stuff during that time of year, or at least it wasn't as common. And if we want to believe what the Bible says about the sheer numbers of crowds that were gathered around Jesus and the things that were going, around, going on at that time, Right. Then you also have to think, yeah, no, there's no possible way that this was happening in December either. Right. There are so many points of unlikeliness yeah. with this yeah. that you have to you have to really start analyzing. It's like this is supposed to be the word of God. Yeah. And if they're telling us that this is happening at this time and the church is supposed to be God's representative on earth, right. then they say that this happened in December, then it must have happened in December. Well, yeah, no. no, the likelihood of it, if it ever happened at all, and you know, we're, let's not talk about this like it's history. Right. It's a story, okay? Right. But even if this had happened, even if there were elements of truth to this story, which there really are not, right. but even if there were, it would make no sense right. for this yeah. to have happened at the time that the Catholic Church wants us to think that it happened. And the church in general, it was just the Catholic church that started this whole tradition. So why set the liturgical calendar up this way? Here's the simple answer. There is no logical reason for it. It was a decision, pure and simple. There are some explanations for the whys and wherefores, but I couldn't find one that didn't seem hopelessly manufactured or purely speculative. There was no rhyme or reason to any of the things that I uncovered. It was a convenient point of insertion that carried a message of hope during a time of year that was dark and cold and less hospitable to the enjoyment of various creature comforts than other times of year. And let's keep in mind, we're now talking about Western Europe because we're talking about the Catholic Church that has its roots in Rome. So it's as cold there as it gets here. Right. And the seasons are comparable to what we see here. So now we're integrating all of this Western European stuff into a story that's supposed to take place in the Middle East. Now, I did get one explanation here from the page on Encyclopedia Britannica that is devoted to Christmas. And this is a direct quote. It says, one widespread explanation of the origin of the state is that December 25th was the Christianizing of the Dies Solis Invicti Nati the day of the birth of the unconquered son, which you can sort of kind of see the parallel there. Right. Um, it's a popular holiday in the Roman Empire that celebrated the winter solstice as a symbol of the resurgence of the sun 
the casting away of winter and the heralding of the rebirth of spring and summer. But here's the thing, heralding the rebirth, I think of that more in terms of resurrection too. So I still say that this whole business works better as a resurrection connection than a birth of Christ connection, but that's just me. Yeah. I don't know more about this than the next person does. Right. But to me, that story fits way better with their doctrine about Easter than it does about Christmas. But it wasn't until the ninth century CE that Christ's mass was given its own liturgy. And even then, it wasn't anywhere near the big deal that Easter was. The church's main high holy days were traditionally Good Friday and Easter. And that was true for a lot of years. Now, fast forward about 800 more years, and we see the more widespread tradition of gift giving at Christmas starting to take shape. This did have a sort of spiritual anchor in that some people equated the practice with reminding people of the gift of Christ to the world. But at least in my mind, that's a reach. The practice was and always has been more secular than people want to give it credit for. And it's rooted in notions of things like charity and goodwill. And as far as that whole gift of Christ thing is concerned, let me tell you, if there ever was a gift that should have gotten lost in the mail, Mm. think about it. But the gift-giving tradition did have an earlier origin that could be traced back to the 15th century. At that point, it symbolized the Magi bringing gifts to present to the Christ child. It did have a bit of a secularizing effect, seeing as the giving of gifts among friends and family was, as it is today, much more about gratifying the recipient which clearly shifts the focus off of Jesus and onto the individual. After all, we give people gifts that they would like, right? (laughs) Not stuff that would get Jesus excited. Otherwise, we'd be giving each other things like carpenter's planes and saws and miter boxes and things (laughs) associated with carpentry. If it was about Jesus, then that's the way that we would handle it. But no, we give gifts that we at least hope that the recipient is going to like and enjoy. Now, this is evil secularization of Christmas actually caused it to be banned in both England and colonial America. Cue those crazy Puritans again. They were behind this little coup and the timing of it, I think is interesting too. Mm. Let's look back at 1659, just three little decades before their limited skirmish over witchcraft, the lovable scamps (laughs) of the Massachusetts Bay colony actually had a, ban on Christmas written into colonial law. No, I am not kidding. And it is still on our own state's government website. This comes from mass.gov and it goes back to 1659, the penalty for keeping Christmas. And this is a direct quote. This is how the law was written and it is still technically on the books. And I quote, I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this with a straight face without, without <laughs> laughing my ass off at it. Let's, let's see what we can do here. For preventing disorders arising in several places within this jurisdiction, by reason of some still observing such festivals as were superstitiously kept in other countries, to the great dishonor of God and offense of others, it is therefore ordered by this court and the authority thereof that whosoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas or the like, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or any other way upon such accountants as aforesaid, every person so offending shall pay of every such offense five shillings as a fine to the county. So you could be fined for celebrating Christmas. Yeah. 
in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1659 and forward. Oh, those crazy, crazy, crazy Puritans. Yeah, those lovable scamps and (laughs) and all the mayhem that they wrought upon their little colony in just a very, very short amount of time. But here's the thing. Christmas was actually a big thing in England by this time. It was first and foremost a religious observance, but kind of like kind of like what we do here. You know, we it's one of a few times that a lot of people will go to church during the year. Right. So they try to keep it in the vein of a religious observance, but, you know, everybody still knows better. It incorporated more than enough secular cheer to raise puritanical hackles. And even though the Puritans were in the minority, we already know from the Salem witch trials the sheer levels of chaos and insanity they were capable of whipping up. They simply couldn't handle the notion of other people engaged in activities like was sailing, which was a very secular part of the holiday celebrations, both in the colonies and with people in 17th century England. This predominantly involved a lot of drinking (laughs) and alcohol-fueled indiscretions that sometimes even included things like orgies and out-of-control public displays of revelry. Things got broke. Things got burned. Tail got chased. People went a little batshit. It was just like Woodstock 99. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're dating ourselves here. Yeah, just a little. And none of it was done in the name of any god. That's the important part. It was marvelously secular and had nothing to do with the people whom it all offended. But just like modern evangelicals, the Puritans didn't like that it was happening, even though they weren't involved and it was none of their fucking business. So... What did they do? They made the bad people stop offending them and their God. And because they believed that life itself was a religious observance, the Puritans didn't see the need to draw attention to one specific day. And that was kind of their defense to this. They didn't even like Easter and eventually wound up getting that banned on two continents, too, or at least part of two continents. And the one quote that I found that encapsulates this was a Puritan saying that says they for whom all days are holy can have no holiday. So with all this in mind and knowing that all things Christian eventually lead to shockingly toxic patterns of both thought and behavior, it comes as no surprise that modern evangelicals want to maintain a stranglehold on the practices that make up the holiday season. There are a lot of things that they just flat out don't like about the holiday season. Not the least of which being saying anything but Merry Christmas. You see, that's why I started out saying Happy Holidays, because fuck them. Um, (laughs) Donald Trump did a stellar job of furthering unrest over this one. And it's one of the more rage-inducing things, was was what I was about to say. But it's like, God, there are so many rage-inducing things that this man did during his presidency that it's hard to narrow it down to just one. Mm. But the rabble-rousing that was involved with this one is particularly rage-inducing to me. Oh, yeah. The problem here is that he's a con man, and he'll say anything, and I mean anything, that will make his most prized constituents like him better. And guess what? Those are the evangelicals, because those are the ones with the influence. He may have held that Bible upside down outside that church, but he held it and gassed a bunch of innocent protesters so he could. And evangelicals have such surface perceptions of these things. All they see is their surrogate savior standing there holding a Bible. They don't even fucking care that it's upside down. So 
when you've got people that firmly in your grasp, it's easy to convey whatever message you want to them as long as you create the illusion of alliance with them. And that was what that was all about. Standing in front of that church, holding that Bible, look at me how pious I am. And he also, I've heard, was in the practice of autographing Bibles. Yes. It was I, another thing that he did. Yeah. I think that the article was accompanied by pictures of said autographed Bibles. Mm-hmm. You might want to find another book to base your life around. At least to me, it's that surface perception of everything that gets most evangelicals upset by, you know, minutia like a holiday greeting, by any greeting besides Merry Christmas. It doesn't matter that there are so many other religions out there. To them, it doesn't matter. Theirs is the only religion that matters, of course, because theirs embodies the way, the truth, and the life. It's a zero-sum game to them, so the holidays should have a zero-sum focus. It's another example of that lack of empathy that we were talking about last week. It is impossible for them to see, recognize, understand, or even care about what this time of year means to anyone but themselves. Now, you give them a president who one day decides to blow up social media, declaring that America, not Christian Americans, but America, is saying Merry Christmas again, and two things happen. First, the underlying resentment of any other faith or non-faith system bubbles to the surface. It doesn't promote peace on earth. It promotes anger, hate, racism, and xenophobia, and turns up the volume on these things in people's heads. Second, It plants thoughts of persecution in people's minds where none exists. Saying Merry Christmas never went away. But the inclusion of that word again in that tweet puts it in the evangelical mind that society has taken something from them that they now must reclaim. I'm sorry, but what has been taken from them? They still have the right and the freedom to approach the holidays any way they want. No one is handing out fines for saying Merry Christmas. No one is shutting down their churches. No one is even trying to deny them the right to experience the holidays their way. Oh, and if your workplace imposes a greeting like Happy Holidays and asks you not to say Merry Christmas, it's not a slight to you or your beliefs. It's a marketing move designed to make every customer or client that does business with them feel comfortable and included. That is it. No persecution involved. And while it's clearly meant to be satire, Mm. I do like the song Merry Fucking Christmas from South Park. It's great. It's meant to be caricaturist in its delivery, but the messaging is quite simple. Evangelicals, this is how ridiculous you look. And they're right. I've had an on and off love-hate relationship with that show since its inception, But this is one of those moments where I think they present a great argument against this ridiculous notion of a war on Christmas. And I'm linking out to the video for this in the show notes. So if you've never heard this song, don't listen to it at work, but definitely listen to it. And the message of this song is evangelicals, no one is taking up arms here but you. There is no enemy within when it comes to your country or how you celebrate the holidays. It's only your own blind arrogance and propensity for following any voice that says things you like to hear that creates this illusion of conflict inside your heads. Oh, and doesn't the Bible warn against this sort of thing? Only listening to the voices and messages that sound good to you? Here, let me help you remember. 2 Timothy 4.3, reading from the NIV. 
For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And you know what? Sometimes that greatest number is one. Mm. And when it comes to Donald Trump, you're listening to a teacher whose teachings will net you nothing more than a dunce cap in the eyes of society in general. Period. End of story. I always get a little bit of a rise when I start talking about evangelicals and Trump at the same time. <laughs> so that was where you, you started seeing my blood pressure rise. Now we're going to bring it down a little bit yeah. and just talk about Santa Claus and the sheer ridiculousness of not allowing a child to believe in Santa Claus. Now, I have to admit that I kind of started this whole mess in my house. Yeah. And before Liam was born, we're not even talking about my kid here. Okay. We're talking about things that when I was a pious read that as legalistic little prick of a teenager, <laughs> I got it into my head that the whole keeping Christ in Christmas thing was like uber important and notions of things like Santa Claus really shouldn't be part of the equation and wound up having a discussion with my mother about this at one point like several years before my sister was born. Incidentally, there's 19 years separating my sister and I because we were products of two separate relationships. And my mother was divorced when I was three months old and didn't remarry until I was uh, 17 in 1989. So my sister came along slightly after that. So we're not talking about two young children trying to uh, trying to pit their mother against each other or teenagers who still believed in Santa Claus. No, my sister wasn't even it wasn't even a glimmer in daddy's eye when we had this conversation. But I take the blame for this because my mother and I wound up having this conversation about Santa Claus and why it's not a good idea for Christians, born again Christians to perpetuate this notion of Santa. And she was so convinced that my sister was not allowed to believe in Santa Claus. So if by some chance she's actually listening, sorry, yeah, that was kind of my fault. But I don't think she was terribly emotionally scarred over it either. I just think it's sad that a kid wound up not having the opportunity to experience this very basic thing that has to do with childhood at least within the cultures that celebrate Christmas. So yeah, my pious little self convinced my mother that it wasn't a good idea. And I saw her do this with my sister. And I always had it in my head to raise my kids that way when they came around. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I had to change a heart just like yeah. we talked about at Halloween. I just had to change a heart where I said, you know what? There are worse things that, your kids can believe in and there are worse fantasies that they can have. And this is a childhood thing. This isn't a Christianity thing. It's right. a childhood thing. Let them believe. Just let them have that. It's a precious short time in their lives that they're going to have to experience this wonder that happens on Christmas morning where they go to bed to an empty tree and then they wake up and there's all this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, the cookies have been eaten. And all these evidences have been laid out in place to show them, yes, absolutely, someone was here and this is what happened. And, you know, it's a fun game that I think 
starts to stimulate those um, those creative centers right. in a kid's mind. It helps stimulate their imaginations a little bit. There's no harm in it. Whether you're evangelical or not, there is no harm in this. And honestly, I knew a lot of evangelicals who still let their kids celebrate Christmas like children and believe in Santa Claus. But, you know, then came the problem with my sister of running interference on these kids who believed. So it had to be explained to her, look, you can't really talk about this right. because there are plenty of kids that believe and their parents think it's okay. Whatever we do at home, that has nothing to do with what they do. That's their choice. Those are their kids. So you can't go up to kids your age and tell them there's no Santa Claus. No, that's a bad idea. No, it's, it's a bad idea on a good day. But all of that notwithstanding... It's a harmless little story that does have some roots, in fact. There was, in fact, a St. Nicholas who, in fact, had this tradition of taking care of the poor kids in his village. But it never extended outside of this one very, very small geographical area. It was never something that was believed to be a global phenomenon or anything like that. But there is that little sliver of fact and truth that gave birth to this whole notion of Santa Claus and all the magic and mysticism that encompasses the Santa Claus myth. St. Nicholas and Santa Claus, not the same thing. It's just that one is based on the other and got blown way out of proportion over time. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Well, Coca-Cola helped. Oh, the Santa Claus thing with Coca-Cola? Yeah. I know that there was something with it, that. They used him in advertising and they kind of cemented the whole image of Santa that we have of the fat jolly man right with the white beard and all of the trappings around that yeah it was a little bit more enig enigmatic yeah. before then uh, people kind of had their own pictures of of what this dude looked like or even if it was a dude maybe it was just this this mystical magical spiritual thing that happened in the spirit of St. Nicholas. Right. But yeah, the, the persona, right. the Santa Claus persona was widely perpetuated by Coca-Cola. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that in a while, but yeah, it's true. And I think it goes without saying, we're going to move, move on from Santa Claus at this point. I think it goes without saying that most evangelicals are going to, they're going to turn their noses up at any tradition that has pagan tagged onto it. Mm. Or at least knowingly has pagan tagged onto it. And regardless of how many times you tell them how some of the things that they do as part of their little Christmas ritual are rooted in paganism, they will turn around and say, oh, no, 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 no. There's all kinds of videos out there on YouTube that try to explain away how, no, Christmas is not a pagan holiday. It's purely Christian, and this is why we do this. Yeah, no, bullshit. It's, no. <laughs> they're, you're doing things that clearly and obviously have pagan roots. Right. But again, I don't really want to go into this big long list of, of examples because it is a long list, but there are also a lot of secular examples too that people think are pagan in origin that aren't. Right. So that might be part of their safety net is the well, who knows aspect of it. But, you know, it just goes right back to my old mantra. People are going to do what they want. Right. So if these people want to incorporate these things into their celebration, they're going to do it. And they're not really going to care, even if they're told that this is the way it is. It's something that's been going on in their family for years, and it's just going to keep going on. 
So I used to be one of those people who believed that, you know, pretty much everything associated with Christmas had pagan roots. And that belief was kind of propagated in Wicca, in the circles that we moved in. But like we just said, there are a lot of things that are associated with paganism, but there are just as many, if not more, that have those purely secular and cultural roots also, and don't have those underlying spiritual significances. Most of the traditions that we see today evolved as a result of certain influences that are all about people, not pagan gods. And yes, there are roots in gift-giving traditions that can be equated with elements of pagan traditions like Saturnalia and the story of St. Nicholas. But as we discussed, those traditions were born far more of secular practices that were designed to bring a little bit of joy to a time of year where things feel cold and dark. We like pretty lights at Christmas time because they help us feel a little better about the sheer lack of daylight that exists in wintertime. That's what the whole light aspect is mm -hmm. of, around this time of year. We put lights on our houses so that at nighttime, there's something pretty to look at. We sing upbeat songs and carols as a means of lifting our spirits and feeling a sense of togetherness. We give gifts for the same purpose, just to uplift and make people feel good and have something to be excited about during a time of year that really excitement is very much at a premium. I know that in, when January hits, it's like I sit there thinking, okay, well, we got like three more months of this shit. So now what? Because now the tree is down, the lights are off the houses, and now it's just winter. Well, at the beginning of winter, people like to remind themselves that, you know, there is still light in the world, that there is still joy, that there is this sense of togetherness. And that's what most people equate with celebrating Christmas are those things. I don't know how many of them consciously think about the psychological aspects of it, but there is a real psychology to the way that we do things because we do them because of how they make us feel. So there is, there is that part of it. I don't know how many people really hone in on that. I think for most, it's just, it's the time of year to do this. So let's do it. But there are other things. We enjoy decadent foods and sweets that only show up on the table at Christmas time for the same reasons, because anything that's pleasing to the eyes, ears, and palate help keep our moods elevated. Most of the things that we do at this time of year are designed to bring us together and remind us of the good things that we have in our lives already. There are even some traditions that sprung up purely by accident over time. And just to illustrate this point, funny little story that we've heard plenty of times, and I'm sure that some of our listeners have heard this one too. It's the story about the uh, the, the newlywed couple, and this girl is making her first Christmas dinner for her right. entire family. So she pulls out her roasting pan, and she pulls out her Virginia ham. Mm -hmm. And before she puts the ham in the pan, she lobs a small section off of the top of the ham, the shorter section. Right. She just lobs that whole top right off of it. Her husband is watching this and asks her, so why did we just lob off this piece of the ham? And she just sort of looks at him and says, I don't know. I do it because I grew up watching my mother do it. Right. So, so when everyone shows up for Christmas dinner, the husband is still intrigued. He goes and asks his mother-in-law. <laughs> so what is this whole business of lobbing off that? 
one section of the ham before you put it in your pan. And his mother-in-law kind of shrugs it off and says, you know what? It's a good question. I really don't know. It's just something that my mother always did. Well, as luck would have it, grandma was there too. So they asked grandma, so where did this start? Did it start with you or did it start with someone else? And why would you just lob off this perfectly good piece of ham? And she looked at them and said, well, you know, it was a time when people were struggling. We didn't have a whole lot. And the pan that I had at the time was too big for a whole ham. So I had to cut a section of it off so that the ham would fit in the pan. (laughs) And you see, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about traditions that spring up by accident. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's just a goofy little example. And it's not it's not a Christmas tradition by any means, but it does prove a point. A lot of the things that we do, we do simply because we've seen them done. Yeah. And because the people who came before us saw them done that way. And their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents did it that way. And there's no real reason for it. And there certainly isn't a spiritual reason for it. It's just this is the tradition in our house. Just like my grandmother's stuffing is a tradition in this house for Thanksgiving. It's not a widespread tradition at all. It's like within our family. But it's just one of those things that over time has defined what that holiday is around here. And there are a lot of things that people do around Christmas that simply define what the holiday is to them. And it doesn't have any spiritual significance. It just has to do with the fact that this is the way that their family has done things for years. It's always impressed upon me, at least since I got out of evangelical Christianity, how evangelicals want this entire season to be about them. And yet, and yet, they embrace everything that looks good tastes good and feels good about Christmas, and they don't even give the first thought to what the actual origins of these things are. They don't question why certain things are popular at this time of year. They just indulge along with the rest of us. Maybe some of them will shy away from things like alcohol, but I assure you, and I know from experience, that there are far more of them who give themselves a hall pass on that cup of cheer than would really care to admit in mixed company. A lot of them do a lot of the same things right down to making merry the way that the rest of us do. And it's also been my experience that most of them like songs like Jingle Bells every bit as much as they like Away in a Manger. It isn't the secularization of the holidays that they disapprove of. It's the lack of attention they perceive themselves to be getting when they see a sign that says Happy Holidays and not Merry Christmas. Mm -hmm. It's all about them. All I can say to that is, sorry, Donald Trump, but people are still going to use the phrases that they want in the context where they are most appropriate. Nothing, nothing has changed aside from you turning up the volume on your misguided constituents' persecution complexes. People like you don't seem to understand that America is a melting pot. We have no designated religion or culture. All we have is people who rightly expect to be able to live the way they want, think the way they want, and celebrate the things that matter to them the way they want. It just so happens that certain traditions have broader appeal than others, just like Christmas. You cannot steal back something. You cannot steal back something that was never taken away from you in the first place. It's always been there. You've always been free to do things the way that you want. And that's just that. If someone wishes me a Merry Christmas, my response is almost uniformly to just say it back. Or if I don't want to say Merry Christmas back, I'll just say and to you as well. 
that's the way that I will deal with that most of the time. I may be an atheist, but I still refer to Christmas as Christmas at home because just because it's the prevailing descriptor used where I live. But if someone says happy Kwanzaa to me, I'm every bit as gracious and I will still respond in kind and I'll still return those well wishes. Happy Kwanzaa and to you as well. It's not difficult. It doesn't hurt. The person that you're having that little exchange with probably doesn't expect that you're following the same traditions, especially if it's something like Kwanzaa or Hanukkah or anything that's not mainline Merry Christmas. I think they understand that that's not your tradition, but it's theirs and their identity matters. They say what they say because that's their their identity and they have every right, every right to project that identity to other people in the context of a conversation or in any way that they deal with other people. They have the right to be them. Mm-hmm. And that means not shoving Merry Christmas in their faces. You don't turn around and criticize somebody for saying Happy Kwanzaa. You say Happy Kwanzaa back, or you simply say, and to you as well. You don't fly in the face with Merry Christmas. And if you do, you better say it in its own a voice that projects goodwill and right. not defiance. Okay. I think there are ways of doing it, but I think that it's just easier to say something like, and to you as well. That's right. just me. To me, all of these greetings, regardless of what holiday they're tagged onto, they serve the same purpose. And that is to spread that peace on earth and goodwill toward people that are at the heart of the holiday season, not just Christmas, but this entire time of year. There is no goodwill. There is no goodwill in asserting your rightness in the face of a diverse population that may or may not hold to your own ideals. That very toxic notion started with the Puritans, and history has given us some glowing examples of the havoc that that kind of thinking wreaks on society. It starts with depriving people of a good time, and when left unchecked, spirals into actions of selfishness, egotism, narcissism, and megalomania that lead to more violent backlash when one group's way of approaching life and faith is challenged or interrupted, even in ways that are largely illusion. We saw it in the banning of Christmas and Easter by the Puritans. We saw it a few decades later in the Salem witch trials. And I'll say it again. We've had 300 years to adjust our stinking thinking on these things and have instead just allowed it to get worse. Instead of zeroing in on an imaginary war on Christmas, why not simply focus on the concept of peace on earth? The best way to deal with these selfish, hate-driven assertions made by evangelicals about attacks on their faith is to approach their little tantrums like you would those of a toddler. Let them scream and shout. Let them stomp their feet and pound their fists. Let them scream bloody murder until they lose their voices. Ignore the rhetoric and let them have their delusions. Or just put them in touch with the show so that they can be set straight. And while that's happening, raise your glasses sing some carols, watch some good movies, and especially this year, make a point of reaching out to friends and family and let them know you're thinking of them. You're not going to change centuries of toxic thinking by responding to infantile behavior with things that are going to set these people off or give them reason to believe that there's a war going on here. That's not the way it's going to be done. But you know what? You can refuse to return volley and you can refuse to act the way that they do. 
you can be the example of peace on earth that their savior was supposed to bring into the situation. You can refuse to take up arms in a war that doesn't exist. And you can purpose to make merry in any way that affirms the person that you are. Because at the end of the day, being the people we want to be and living our lives the way we want to live them is a luxury most evangelicals will never know. There's a reason why they get so angry about things like this. When you're shackled to your religion the way that they are, it's difficult to know what peace really is. It's made even more difficult when you have people in power who are purposed to convince you that you're somehow at war over something like Christmas and that you need to win back something that's never been taken away from you, like your right to say Merry Christmas. It's difficult to just let others have things you know you'll never be allowed to enjoy. And that, I think, is a lot of it. I think a lot of it stems from resentment over the boundaries that are placed on them over the things that they observe but will never be able to partake of. And I think a lot of frustration rises out of that. And then you get some asshole like Donald Trump stirring the pot, mm -hmm. and it just makes it worse. Yeah. But here's the thing. Bottom line, misery loves company. And misery is what evangelicals attempt to spread when they cry persecution over a two-word phrase that changes nothing about what the holidays mean to them as individuals. Here's an idea. Let them wallow in their misery and let it put a damper on their day. You just purpose to be thankful that at some point you learned to think better, to not have outside influences pulling the strings of your thought life or let words set in peace incite war inside your head. In short, celebrate what you plan to celebrate, if anything. Secure in the understanding that when the holidays are over, they'll still be tethered to a religion that fuels hate and you will still be free to live your life unbound. Oh, and happy, happy holidays. holidays. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.